Hope you've been reading the story. You know, going through the story, not only are we going to go through the Scripture in 31 weeks, but it is our high hope that you would be developing a habit of sitting and being with God throughout these 31 weeks and that it would become a part of who you are. And so the story is good for getting a general picture of all of Scripture, but it's also good for practicing uh, that necessary habit of daily uh, being with God. And so we hope that you're, you're doing that. Today we're continuing through and we're going to be looking at the story of David. Uh, the text that I'll be reading this morning will be from uh, 120, page 128 and 129. It's also in First Chronicles 17. So if you've got your uh, Bible or the story, that's where we'll be. But I, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about David before we get into the text. I, I don't know about you, but as I read through the life of David, I was impressed with the normalcy of the life of David. He's one of the few people that we can track from being young to being old and, and how that faith grows and develops throughout his life. And it's really kind of refreshing to see somebody that's got a, a quasi-normal life, I think, that we can really relate to. And as I was reading through this, I thought about the rhythm to our lives and the, the cycle or the path that most of our lives will take as you get to adulthood. You know, we kind of have vernacular that we use to describe growing up and in, in, in you, you, we say you're getting out on your own. You get a place of your own and you get on your own two feet. And, and that's kind of how we think of things. You know, you leave home and you get a trade or you go to college, you get a job, you, you do these types of things and then you, you move out and it's kind of a, a rite of passage to get your own place, whether it's a, you know, apartment or a house, but it's a space of your own. And then once you get that space, you work to fill it. And at first, it's filled with borrowed furniture and rented and, and things that you've stolen and salvaged. And then it becomes things that, that you purchase and, and you keep and that you, you, know, you want to last for a while. And then you have kids and then you realize nothing's forever. And so, you know, that, this is kind of how that works. And, and, and our lives work that way. If, if, if you've got kids or you're thinking about kids, I mean, it... You get this. You get this great uh, time together alone when you're first married, and that's coming out of dating when you were able to sit together and talk and visit. And then, then you get married and you're able to sit and visit. And then you have children. And you start to chase them all around, and and you sit a little bit less. And then, you know, if you know if your kids are going to get into Stanford, you know, you've got to get them into baseball clinic at five. Otherwise, you know, that's not going to happen. And so you got to got to get them in there. And so then. You know, you gotta have a backup plan. So if baseball's not it, maybe Juilliard is it. And so you gotta get them into, you know, violin lesson. And so that's on Tuesday, Thursday, other things on Monday, Wednesday. And, and somebody's gotta pay for all this. So now you gotta, you know, you gotta work. My goodness. And so you got jobs and kids and, and you find that you sit a lot less and you run a lot more. And we use that in our vo vocabulary, don't we? Oh, I, I'm on the run. I gotta run over here. I gotta run and do this. And, and that's the language we use. We gotta run. And we find that we sit a lot less. As a matter of fact, it seems that something inside of us rebels against sitting. You're sitting and you're like, I should be running. I'm sitting, I should be going, I should be doing. And we don't sit. It's not just couples. If you're single, uh, you can probably relate to this in, in several aspects of your life as well. I mean, vocationally and, and professionally. But also, I think all of us can relate to this, this relationship with God. You know, when we first come to know God, there's usually a lot of sitting 
A lot of times we sit together and we'll visit with God and we'll pray and we'll read Scripture and we're anxious to do all of those things and we sit and do that. But then we become involved in church and we get jobs and we do these things that that start to make us busier and we sit less and we do more. And David, I think, is at that spot here at this text. If you followed along, you saw that David had a lot of time to sit as a shepherd. Shepherds are able to sit because the sheep kind of graze. And when they graze, they're there and you're able to sit and watch. And at night you put them down, you're able to sit. And David has lots of time to sit alone with God. And he's, he's praying and he's writing these psalms and, and all these things he's able to do while he's sitting. But then he becomes this military hero. He defeats Goliath and becomes a leader in Saul's army. And he becomes a little bit more on the run and he becomes a little bit busier. And then he's on the run from Saul for his life. And by definition, being on the run, you don't have a lot of time to, to sit. And so David is, is moving constantly. And then he becomes the king. And, and not only does he become the king, now he's, he's got to pr- protect Jerusalem. And now he's got to win wars and, and, and fill the, the, the palace with things. And, and he's constantly on the move. Now, I don't know what it is, but something happens in the text where David looks around at the palace that he's sitting in And it's got all this beautiful cedar paneling, which was a luxury item at the time. Those of you that have paneling in your houses, you may feel differently about it. But uh, then paneling was in. I mean, it was totally in paneling at the time. And David looks at all this paneling and he thinks, man, I live here and God's out in a tent. And I don't know if it's because David was a shepherd and he was used to being outside and this felt foreign to him. Or maybe David's heart was just so sensitive that he thinks, man, I shouldn't have something better than God. And he says, you know, we need, to, we need to build a house for God. And so he asked Nathan the prophet. He says, hey, Nathan, do you think we should build a temple? And, and Nathan says, yeah, let's go for it. And so David runs off uh, to have some building preparation. But the problem is that, that David wants to give a gift to God that God doesn't want. And, and God has to tell Nathan that night. He says, listen, you got this wrong. You need to tell David, I'm not interested in a house. I don't want it. Now, now, I don't know why David missed it. It could be that he was running and sitting less with God, and so maybe he wasn't as in tune. It could be that David was just a man. And genetically, there is this, this hindrance to good gift-giving inside of men, it seems. It, it, there's this, this problem uh, that, that exists within men. Uh, there's, there's some response and, and acknowledgement here. I asked for some folks on Facebook to give me uh, some bad gifts. I'll be honest, some of them were too painful to share. Um, I'll share a few here that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The article is titled, The Gift That Needs Forgiving. Um, Maybe some of you can relate. But anyways, let me me share a few of these with you. One is from Lindsay Gibson. Uh, It says, uh, Lindsay Gibson was thrilled to find a stocking under the tree, several carefully wrapped gifts from her husband Christmas morning that is until she opened them. Ms. Gibson, an elementary school teacher, had been hoping for her favorite perfume, new boots, or a nice purse. Instead, her husband gave her golf gloves, a golf skirt, and a golf shirt with a country club logo on it, even though she rarely golfs. He also presented her with a heating pad, a nice Christmas heating pad there, a Listerine breath strips, and generic nasal strips to prevent snoring. I never got gifts like that before, said Ms. Gibson. It looked as if my husband was buying for a 70-year-old lady riddled with arthritis and face-crinkling halitosis, not me, his lovely 34-year-old bride, 
who practices good oral hygiene. And I'm, I'm sure that she does. Uh, another one in here from Tom Valentino. Grew up in a large Italian-American family. In his parents' house, Christmas was about religious values and food. Uh, gifts were an afterthought. So flash ahead a few decades when Mr. Valentino, an accountant, picked out a holiday gift for his wife. He said, I started to think. I already bought her a fancy watch last year for her birthday. How many of those does she need? And so then he remembered. He's being thoughtful. Then he remembered his wife had said she needed a vacuum and a bigger pasta pot. And so off to Macy's he went. He said, I could almost smell the sauce cooking with meatballs, sausage, and bracioli. He said, how could a woman not be happy with these? He found out. (laughs) Because the gifts made his wife cry. The worst part of it were the looks the kids gave me, said Mr. Valentino. It's been 15 years, and I can't tell you how many times I've been reminded of those gifts. Now, some of you aren't laughing because it's just a little too close. You know what I'm saying? It's it's a little too close. It hurts just a little too much right now. Uh, Some of you are surprised, and you're not laughing because you thought this was good. And so there's some, there's some suggestions I'm going to pass on here. It says, never give a gift that suggests your spouse is less than ideal. Uh, so no unsolicited exercise equipment, uh, self-help books, wrinkle creams, nose hair, uh, diet manuals, um, workout tapes. All these things, I think, fit under this bracket. So, man, if you were thinking about running out for Mother's Day and grabbing her uh, a treadmill, probably probably a bad idea. Uh, Appliances and cookware apparently are okay, but only if she asks for them. Um, I was told growing up that women never wanted anything that plugged in. So this is, you know, an an evolution of that. Uh, It says, don't even think about a gift that you will get more enjoyment out of than your spouse. So, you know, these are all good, good tips for those that are challenged at gift giving. But, but really, the problem with, with poor gifts is frequently a, a lack of thought. And I think that's where David's at. David has been running, and he's said, you know, I've, I've accomplished this here. Maybe what God would really like is for me to run around and build him a house. But that's not what God wants. God says this through Nathan. He says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I've moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites. Did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies." Now, notice here, this was what God says. David said, I wanted to build you a house, but God says this. He says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. 
When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son, and I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Wow. If you've been following along with us, you maybe noticed here what's just happened. God has promised to Abraham way, way, way back that, listen, I'm going to give you a a people. And not only that, but I'm going to give you a place, a home, a house, and I'm going to give you uh, prosperity. And God has just made that same covenant to David. He says, David, listen, as I've promised to your ancestors, I'm going to give that to you. You wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. You want to build a place for my name? He says, I'm going to make your name great. You wanted to do this for me? He says, but listen, I want to prosper you. Why is it that David uh, did this? Why is it that God did this for David, rather? Uh, Why? It's because God had made that commitment, and God loved David. And God didn't want a building project because David was already his building project. God wanted to build his people. God didn't need a place to rest. And that's probably why David wanted to build a house. In all of the ancient Near East kingdoms, a lot of times what would happen is these these kings would build a temple for the deities that they felt had conquered uh, all the enemies for them. And so what, what the king would do is he would build a temple so that way they would stay put. The God would stay put and the God would not move and go someplace else, lest that God turn on them. And so it seems that maybe David is trying to ensure that God will remain with him. Maybe it's that David, uh, you know, he just thinks that they ought to have one like everybody else has one. But God says, I don't need a place to rest and I'm not going to leave you. I'm always going to be with you. And I don't need a place for my name to rest because I'm out among my people. I'm constantly working on your behalf, building you up because you are the place that my name rests. My name doesn't rest in a house or a building. My name rests on you. And God says, I want to build you up. And so what is David's response to all of this overwhelming love? Uh, it says that when Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation, King David went in and sat before the Lord. He sat before the Lord. You know, church, that's, that's I think, what God wanted to begin with. You know, here David's been running around and he's been conquering and he's been doing all these things. And now he says, you know, I'd like to run around and build a temple for you. And God says, enough running. Let's just sit together. And David is overwhelmed by this and he sits in the presence of God. Now, if you've read the rest of this chapter, you know that David goes on and he does other things. There are more battles that are won. There are more people that are governed. There are more things that David accomplishes. He even makes preparation for the temple. But all of that is secondary What comes first is sitting with God. You know, it's interesting to me that as I read through this, there's a phrase that occurred more often than not when David did something. It said, you know, David went out to fight the battle and the Lord gave him the victory. You know, David went to do this, but God was with him in all that he did. You see, David may be going, but God is the one that's doing. David's job is to sit in the presence of the Lord. You know, David wanted to make a building project for God, but God said, you are my building project. And if you've ever built things, you know, one of the easiest things to help it go smoothly is for it to sit still. You know, that's why you have a vice in, in workshops. And so you can hold something still while you drill on it, you work on it, you sign it, because you don't want it to move. 
I mean, same thing's true with surgeons, right? If you're going to go in for heart surgery, they sedate you. And it's not just so that way you don't, you know, totally freak out when that happens. It's so that you're not moving. They don't want you to move while they're doing these things because it would have disastrous consequences. If you've ever taken your car in to to get the oil changed, you know they, they usually park the car. It's traditional to stop the engine and remove the oil that way as opposed to say, well, just slow down to 20 miles an hour and we'll do it while we're on the go. They want you to stop. Same thing's true spiritually, folks. You know, we think that we got to be doing and going, and God says, listen, I can't do anything with you until you sit still. And that's the challenge, I think, for us. There may be many things that God would have for us to do and do through us, but our first and primary work is to sit still in the presence of God. Our worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song of decision. And it's my hope that you've been sitting this week with God. And perhaps God this week has led you to something. Maybe he has put in your heart that you need to receive him. And you say, you know what, I'm going to make that response today. Or maybe God has put in your heart that you need to make a commitment to this church. Or maybe God has said, you know, there's something that you need to share publicly with the congregation. If Whatever that is, if you've been sitting with God and God's revealed that to you, we'll, we'll offer you this opportunity this morning to come and to share Uh, publicly what God's been doing with you in your time of sitting with Him this week. That's my challenge to you. Take advantage of the story. Take advantage of our time together and use that time to sit and be with God.